0: If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, and we are going to be in verses 1 through 15. Uh, It's on page 185 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. Today, we enter a new stage in the book of Joshua. We've been trudging through for the last several weeks. Um, So far, we've seen several things. We've seen God promise his presence with his people in chapter 1. He said that he would be with him wherever they went. Uh, We've seen him save Rahab the prostitute, who many saw as unforgivable. But we've seen God save her. Uh, We've seen God's people cross the Jordan River, uh, all the while trusting God, who stopped the flow of water and brought them across on dry ground miraculously. Uh, In chapter 5, they met the captain of the Lord's army, Jesus himself, uh, who was wielding a sword and commanding worship. Uh, We've seen God sovereignly bring the walls of Jericho down, uh, and then... Uh, Unfortunately, we saw Achan disobey God. We saw the people of God repent and and put sin to death. And we saw God forgive and relationship renewed. Uh, We've seen shadow after shadow after shadow of God's full forgiveness of sin in his son Christ. Uh, Yes, that's present even in the book of Joshua. Uh, And last week, We saw the Israelites make a bad decision to covenant uh, with these people that were disguised known as the Gibeonites. Uh, But we also saw God save the Gibeonites and display to them his majesty and mercy uh, in the temple where he placed them. Uh, But before we jump into today's text, I want to remind us of something that I said on day one of this series, and it's this. Uh, Not (laughs) Siri, Siri's popping up on the iPad. Um, So uh, this is what I want us to remember. Um, The book of Joshua is a historical narrative. Uh, It is telling us the what of the story. Uh, It answers the who and the where questions with each battle that that they come to. But uh, remember that we're to read this as a sermon. Uh, and ask the why question as well when we come to the text. Uh, Dale Dale Ralph Davis reminds us this. He says, uh, The prophecy of Joshua means to convict, not merely to inform. To comfort, not simply to enlighten. The book of Joshua is preaching material beamed to Israel in the form of a historical narrative. Uh, I want us to see that in today's text. Uh, It's a miraculous text, and figuring out what happened, uh, as you're going to see, is actually pretty complex. But the most important question is not the what, but the why. So keep that in mind as we dive into the text. So let's dive in. Joshua 10, verses 1 through 15, if you'll follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities." And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japha, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth-horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and the moon, in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Our three main truths that I want us to savor in this text this morning are these. Uh, Number one, old promises with new hope. Number two, the God who listens. And number three, the God who helps. So point one, old promises, new hope. Uh, To start off, I think it'd be helpful for us just to look at at a map of Canaan, the promised land, and to understand exactly what's going on here. Uh, So far, we know that the people of Canaan have been hearing about Israel's God for quite some time. Uh, Rahab told the spies all the way back in chapter 2, Uh, that God's reputation preceded them, uh, and that the people's hearts melted because they were hearing about Israel's God. Um, So first, God's people, they take out Jericho, um, which is right over here. So they cross the Jordan River, they take out Jericho. And then uh, they they fail at Ai, and then take over Ai. Uh, Then they make a pact with the people of Gibeon. Uh, So you can see that that the map of Israel, they they effectively built a wedge between the north and the south uh, in Canaan. Uh, They controlled the central plateau of the land. And and now, Gibeon, right at the heart of all of that, are on their team. Um, They had the prime strategic position to kind of pick apart the rest of the cities from on high. But uh, while this is all happening, as we learned last week, Uh, Those fearful, melted hearts from from chapter 2 had time to harden and and to prepare to oppose God's people. Uh, The king of Jerusalem, and this is the first time Jerusalem is ever mentioned in the Bible, uh, that king of Jerusalem is starting to see the writing on the wall. So, what does he do? Uh, Look at verses 1 through 5. It says, As soon as Adonai king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So it then goes on to say what happened. Um, So so Adonai Zedek, uh, side note, his name means Lord of Righteousness. Now that's what what Adonai Zedek means. Uh, he's got this, this great name, but that great name doesn't go very far. Uh, he's actively opposing the Lord. He's fearful that, that all of this is going on, and he starts calling people together. So he's, he's got a great name, but he's actively opposing the Lord. And so I want us to consider this from the beginning today. Uh, your name or heritage doesn't make you a child of God. Uh, Just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't mean that you won't be found opposing the Lord. Uh, So this guy, Adonai Zedek, the 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 Lord of Righteousness, the King of Jerusalem, he says to all the kings in the south, he says, get up here. Uh, We've got to take care of business before it's too late. Gibeon defected, and we're all about to be cut off from all of our allies up in the north. So they come up and they start taking pot shots at at Gibeon. And what does Gibeon do? They cry out for help. We learned last week that that they put their hope in the covenant of the name of the Lord. Now, they're really going to have to rely on that covenant. So they say, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. We're going to come back to that later. But what I want us to see is that uh, there was a golden opportunity for Joshua and Israel here, right? They made a bad covenant in last week's chapter. They can't kill the Gibeonites. We can't kill the Gibeonites. But we never said someone else couldn't, right? Golden opportunity. They could just let the Gibeonites get whipped. And it wouldn't be their fault, right? No. No. We learned last week that, that when the Gibeonites covenanted with the people of God, that they were actually engrafted in with them. They're part of them now. They're brothers and sisters. They're spiritual flesh and blood. Uh, look at verse 7. It says, so, so they call out to Joshua and Israel, verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and the people of war with him, and all the men of the... Uh, are the mighty men of valor. So they're ready to protect these people, bad covenant as they may. They're, they're there and ready to take care of them. And here we go. God hasn't spoken to, to the people since chapter eight, verse 18. And he breaks his silence here in verse eight. So uh, Gimeon calls out, Joshua goes up, verse eight, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. What a promise. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Can you imagine the hope that you'd have if the living God of the universe said that to you? Do you think you'd have confidence? Yes. But haven't we heard this somewhere before? Yes, we have. God promised them the same exact thing all the way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, God said, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So this is an old promise from chapter 1, and even before that with Moses. This is an old promise, but with new hope. God repeats his promise to Joshua and the people of Israel here in chapter 10. Isn't this how God often reassures his children one commentator notes that God reassures his children not by unveiling to them some new truth previously unknown, but by reaffirming promises already given, which somehow take on special power because of the present pressing need. This is what God's people usually need. Not new truth, but old truth freshly applied to their current need. So What about you this morning? What are you going through right now in your life? What old truth needs to give you new hope this morning? That's the the beauty of the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why reading God's old word is so important for God's people. We need to be reminded and refreshed in old truths that sustain us and encourage us and give us hope for today. Christianity isn't about innovation. It's about contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude 3 says. God gives old promises for new hope. Now, before we move on, I want us to see something else in the text. God has just given them divine reassurance that they are going to win. It's a certainty. And what's their response? God promised that not a man would stand before them. And then, look at verse 9. It says, So, Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Amazing. They, Joshua gets this promise, and he doesn't say, well, I guess God's sovereign in this thing, so we don't have any responsibility here. We'll just sit here and be passive and let God do the work. After all, he gave us his promise. No. No. They cherish the confidence they have because of the Lord, and they hit the ground running for a sneak attack. Divine sovereignty doesn't lead to no human responsibility. When God's sovereignty is rightly understood, it should energize human response. If you were in a football game and you knew you couldn't lose as the quarterback, would you sit on the sideline or drop back and throw bombs? God's going to win this, and it leads his people to confident action. Christians, the same is true for us today. God has already won. Through his son, Jesus, God promises complete victory over sin, over Satan, over death, and over hell. Jesus came and stood condemned in our place. He died a brutal death on the cross for us and he cried out it is finished. Then he rose from the grave 3 days later confirming to us that he'd accomplished the victory that he'd promised. That should lead us to rest. Yes. But it should lead us to it should not lead us to passiveness in the Christian life. God's sovereign victory should lead us to walk in confidence Knowing that he's already won the war. God gives old promises for new hope. Point two, the God who listens. Now, I'm going to take this a little bit out of order in the text, but the next truth I want us to see is that the God of the universe listens to his people. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. It says, At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, I just want to acknowledge that these verses have caused many people trouble with regards to believing in the Bible. They say, come on, uh, he commanded the sun to stand still? Science tells us that the sun always stands still. And it's the earth that moves. The Bible, therefore, must not be scientific or true. Well, not so fast. First, we've got to answer the question with this text. What what exactly is going on here? Joshua marched all night to get there under the cover of darkness for a surprise attack. So first of all, is he praying for more darkness or more light? Second... What is it that he actually says here? He says, son, stand still. Then, verse 13, it says, the sun stood still, and the moon stopped. Uh, These are the Hebrew words, damam and amad. Damam and amad. What do those words mean? Well, in their most basic form, they simply mean stop. In fact, it's the same word from chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, speaking of the Jordan River, you'll recall. Chapter 3, verse 16. The waters coming down from above stood, Ahmad, same word, and rose up in a heap very far away. And at Adam, the city that is beside Zerathon, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. So, In chapter 3, verse 16, the the river stopped flowing. Same word here in chapter 10. Joshua's asking God to stop the sun. Uh, The other thing for us to consider here is that this is poetry. Uh, Most of your translations probably have this section kind of set apart with spacing uh, to show you that this is poetry and not narrative. So it's Narrative, 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 and then it breaks apart for this section, which is poetry. What does that mean? Well, it it means that the words aren't trying to describe scientifically what the sun's doing or not doing. It, It even says that this is written, it says, in the book of Yashar. What's that? Well, it's a book of odes, poetically written about the heroes of the day same book is referenced in 2 Samuel 1, 18. It's poetry. So think about Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19, again, poetry describing the heavens and the stars and the sun. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. If I stood up here this morning and said, hey, did you guys catch the sunrise this morning? It was beautiful. Are you really gonna say, that guy's a liar? The sun doesn't rise, it stands still. The earth spins. No, you'd know that I wasn't trying to describe something scientifically. And it wouldn't make what I said untrue. The sunrise was beautiful. The Bible isn't anti-science, but it's not always trying to describe things scientifically. For the record, God is capable of whatever's being described here. In fact, I believe, and the Bible teaches, even crazier things than this. The Bible teaches that after being in the grave for three days... Jesus rose to life, literally, defeating sin, Satan, and death for all who would repent and believe in him. There's solid evidence to back that up. So, if you come to trust in that, in Jesus' resurrection, texts like this aren't hard at all. In fact, in Luke 24, Jesus teaches us that texts like this in Joshua 10 actually point to him. We're going to talk more about that later. Uh, At the end of the day, I don't know what scientifically happened here in Joshua 10. And no one else seems to either. But that's not really the point. So what is the point? Well, the point is this. Joshua spoke to God. And get this. God listened, and heeded Joshua's voice. (laughs) That's way bigger and way more important than figuring out what scientifically happened here. Think about this. Several times, the Bible rightly refers to man as dust. We're cosmically insignificant by ourselves in the grand scheme of things. We're described as dust. Go stand outside and look up at the stars some night. Go look out at the ocean and then come back and tell me how big you are. No, we're dust according to scripture. And on the other end of that line is God, the creator and sustainer of all things. John chapter one, verse three, it says, all things were made through him and without him, was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So dust speaks to God, And God heeds his voice. That's astounding. I'm reminded of of Psalm chapter 8 here. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Dust speaks to God and he listens in this text. Now, two truths that that I want us to understand here. Number one, this isn't suggesting that man or, or Joshua could call whatever shot he wanted and God would just bend to Joshua's will. Not at all. God is not man's puppet. But, point two, we can pray according to God's will and expect a response. 1 John chapter 5 verses 14 through 15 it says this it says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him you see that that's what's going on here in this text God gave Joshua a promise in verse 8. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That's the promise. Joshua is then making his prayer in the sight of Israel, so God gets the glory here. And he makes the prayer in accordance with God's promise and God's will. Friends, this is why we spend time each and every week praying scripture together. If you want to pray God's will, pray Scripture. Can we pray for things outside of Scripture? Yes, absolutely. And we should. But we can pray Scripture with more confidence than anything. And that brings us to our final point. Point three the God who helps. The God who helps. How then should we read the Old Testament? Should we read stories like this to just get leadership advice? Or for good morality lessons? Are they just inspired versions of Aesop's fables? I mentioned Luke chapter 24 earlier. Jesus gives us a better way to read the Old Testament. Look at this. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27 So this is after Jesus has risen from the grave, Luke 24, 25-27. He's walking with them, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here we go, verse 27. And beginning with Moses, what's he referring to? Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and the prophets... And the Psalms, uh, sorry, uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them uh, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, talking about a good section of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, referring to all of the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Then he adds verses 44 and 45. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. So Jesus is telling us that books like Joshua are more than just moral lessons, and they're more than leadership principles. They're about him. Each Old Testament book is pointing forward to show us what Jesus will be like when he comes. We've seen this the last two weeks, haven't we? Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites' question was this. Is there any hope for us? For for those of us who are born outside the promises of God, is there any hope for us? That's the question the Gibeonites were asking. And we learned that yes, there is. There's hope through the covenant that places you in the mercy of God and in his protection. That's a picture of redemption and a portrait of Christ. There's hope for us in casting ourselves on Christ. But what about after covenanting with God through Christ? If the Gibeonite question in chapter 9 was, is there hope? The next question they had here in chapter 10 Is is there help? For those who align themselves with God's promises and God's covenant, will there be any help going forward? Again, the answer is yes. Chapter 10 of Joshua is a pattern for us of what we can expect from Jesus. Uh, Look at this. The Gibeonites, verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So save us. Help us. Will there be any help? Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. There's hope for salvation and help going forward that's what you can expect from christ understand this what was written in the old testament was written for us today to show us a pattern of what we can hope for in christ romans chapter 15 verse 4 it says for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Look what Peter said to the people of his day. That also applies to us this morning. 1 Peter 1, verses 10-12, through he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament here, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Then Paul again in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples For us. What what are they all saying here? They're saying that the Old Testament is both a portrait of redemption and a pattern for the redeemed. So, when, when Gibeon called out for help, there was help. What about in the rest of the chapter? Look at verses 8 through 11. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machadab. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the son of Israel killed with the sword. So do you see where the stress is here? The Lord said to Joshua, I have given them into your hands. And the Lord threw them into a panic. Most scholars here think that the Lord is the subject all the way through the verbs of this verse. So it's the Lord who struck them, and it's the Lord who chased them. Then the Lord threw down large hailstones from on heaven. And finally, it says, There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So again, remember that that the text is telling us information. It's telling us what happened. But it's also preaching to us. We're meant to see that God fights for his people. He's the one who sovereignly goes to battle and fulfills his promises to his people. Is there hope for those who covenant with God? Yes. Is there help? Yes. Verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. There's help because the Lord fights for his own. If you're not a Christian and you've never put your hope in Jesus, you can today. There's hope for you. If you are a Christian and you've already put your hope in Christ, you're going to need some help. As soon as the Gibeonites covenant with God, they're opposed. They need help. We do too, and that help is abundantly available. This is a pattern for the people of God. We have old promises that give us new hope. We have a God who listens and responds in accordance with his will. We have a God who gives us hope and help. Behold our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. It is amazing to us to think about you hearing the voice of a man. Lord, we confess that that we don't deserve to be heard. But you lean into us and you hear our prayers. And so, Lord, we are humbled by that truth. We are also confident in that truth. We know that we are heard only because of your Son who stands between us and the just God. So, Lord, we rely on that. We just ask for forgiveness for where we fail to speak to you. What a great honor we have to get to speak to the God of the universe. And that you hear us. Lord, thank you for giving us hope and help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.